Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Khurram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. For today's episode, I wanted to continue on our discussion from last week, which focused on defining and understanding what a hate crime is within Canada. And so last week's episode, we focused mainly on understanding what the law says about hate crimes within Canada, what the main details about that are. And of course, I covered some uh, basic, I guess, legal principles or ideas that go behind uh, an understanding within Canada as to what is considered a hate crime or not. And so you don't need to watch that episode to watch this episode, but if you are interested in learning about, or at least uh, listening in on our discussion on what a hate crime is, please do go uh, and give it a listen. But for today's episode, I wanted to take that idea we focused on last week and sort of expand on it into what is uh, a more current issue, and that is focusing on the online harms bill. And this is more or less focused on understanding and interpreting what the online harms bill is that has been proposed by the federal liberal government. And so the reason that I wanted to focus on this was because the online harms bill is itself a substantial change that the Canadian government is making in terms of fighting online hate. And so this obviously is a part of what we talked about last week, where online hate is only one place where hate crimes can uh, obviously happen, not the only place, but has of course become a much more substantial place in recent years. And so we, what I hope to do is to understand what the aim of the online harms bill is and its purpose, as well as understanding what will or could be its impacts, as well as what could be the good or the bad of the bill as well. So to primarily understand what is it that could, you know, help society through this bill, but also kind of the problems that may arise due to this bill. And so I'll try to sort of cover both sides of the debate as best as I can. Of course, obviously, I can't, uh, as always, I can't go through every single point, but I'll I'll do my best to kind of cover both sides uh, as best as I can. And, you know, since this is, in fact, a recent issue or something that is currently being debated, uh, by the time that you either may listen to this episode or by the time that I actually do publish this episode, some of the stuff that I maybe talk about might be a bit outdated or maybe uh, things that aren't of an issue anymore. So again, I apologize if there is maybe some outdated information, but everything that I'm talking about will be what uh, is, you know, what I currently have been able to find or that we currently do know about the bill or sort of some of the uh, the debates or kind of issues surrounding the bill as well. Uh, and also, I, I think with the bill, I think the best place to sort of start off uh, and sort of maybe get into is to really understand and ask, like, what is the online harms bill and what is its purpose? And so I, I think an important thing to understand about when the government is passing laws is that Oftentimes, you know, the the laws themselves are very complicated. There's a lot of intricate, uh, you know, details that go behind them. And, you know, it's one of those things that I think uh, is maybe unfortunate when it comes to passing laws for any government uh, is that, you know, we oftentimes uh, sort of have two versions of it where you have the actual legal definition of the law, where you have lawyers and judges and politicians 
who go through, you know, every little detail about the law or who will understand every little detail. And then also, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know how to put this, but maybe sort of the general understanding of the law, right? So there's always, you know, sort of a general public understanding of what the law is or what the law isn't. And so I think an important thing to remember when we are maybe trying to understand what the online harms bill is and what it isn't is to make sure that we aren't necessarily, I don't want to say getting false information or anything, but that we're not just getting sort of a generalized understanding of it. And so uh, again, um, it's really important when trying to understand laws, like I, I think I highlighted in the last episode as well, that there's a lot of details or things that we may not understand and that there's things that we might just kind of assume unjustly. And so then to get into the online harms bill and its purpose, um, and again, this is to really simplify it because I don't want to just give you a legal definition of it, but really the purpose of the online harms bill is to create a law that targets the use of online media like social media websites or online forums and to create a hate propaganda or hate speech and disturbing content um, by creating penalties within the Criminal Code of Canada and the Canadian Human Rights Act that would make these actions punishable under the law. Um, and so if, if that didn't make any sense, because I, I think I maybe, I, I think I might have messed up the explanation there, uh, but essentially they're creating laws that target stuff like hate propaganda and hate speech that is done on online media. So basically it would look to counter hate speech that people face online and then create ways that people who are attacked through that online hate speech, have a way to seek justice or accountability to the people who target them. And so this is sort of just the general idea of the purpose of the law. And now I want to get into some interesting points in the law or things that, uh, you know, I thought at least were interesting and maybe, you know, kind of little details that you don't necessarily hear about when people are, you know, discussing uh, the law itself. And so the first one that I thought was actually, uh, you know, maybe a bit concerning, one that definitely concerned me, judging by this organization's history. But the law itself does increase the role of many security organizations, mainly CSIS. So if those of you who don't know, but CSIS is the basically the Canadian equivalent of the CIA or the NSA. And so CSIS is the spy agency within Canada. And the law would actually increase the role of CSIS by a lot. It would increase the role of organizations like the RCMP as well because they would basically play a bigger role in handing out warrants and executing warrants as well to people who are suspected of online hate crimes and people who have violated uh, the, uh, the rules within the online harms bill. And so there'd be a lot more power that would actually go to many of these security organizations, which I'm sure as people of color or just minorities within Canada, that's definitely something that I think some of us would be somewhat hesitant with. Uh, and it's not that necessarily that we would necessarily be targeted by CSIS or the RCMP through this, but at the same time, CSIS and RCMP and many other security organizations within Canada, like the CBSA, for example, have a bad track record when it comes to using their powers appropriately or even 
in using their powers to target people who are minorities. And so I think that would be my one concern. And I, I apologize for not going into detail as to how uh, you know, the powers would increase, but it would obviously depend on which organization. For example, CSIS would not deal with something like a warrant. That's something that the RCMP or police services would deal with, right? With CSIS, it would be more about tracking data or, you know, tracking people's information or tracking what certain people are doing online. That would, I believe the mandate would increase their powers to do so. So obviously there is some concern, and, and I think rightfully there is some concern over how much more tracking the government would be doing based on our online activities. Secondly, the law would also create a, a new government regulator that would basically uh, take care of the, uh, the digital safety within Canada. And um, to some degree, the government regulator would be very anonymous as well. So a lot of the things that they would do, because it deals with people's information or their private details, it wouldn't necessarily be something of public record. And so, for example, one thing that I read was that in certain circumstances, not that this would always happen, but that if they were doing a, you know, a ruling or a judgment of sort, um, they wouldn't necessarily reveal all the information that they were dealing with. So, for example, they wouldn't go into detail about everything. They would do it maybe behind closed doors because of the fact that some of the information obviously would deal with people's personal information or their lives, and so they wouldn't necessarily be upfront about this. Now, this is, of course, problematic because government regulations or government regulators are usually quite upfront and public because that's the one way for the public to know what the government is regulating. When we don't know what they're regulating, there can be maybe some, um, I guess, conflicts, you want to say, because of the fact that, well, we're in the dark when it comes to understanding how the government is approaching certain things. And so this government regulator would essentially be called the Digital Safety Commissioner of Canada. And they would also uh, lead what is called the Digital Recourse Council of Canada. And so uh, it's my understanding that the Digital Recourse Council uh, would be the one that would actually be ruling on things of digital safety. So if there was an issue uh, of a conflict between two people or something, or there was someone accused of online hate, for example, I believe it would be uh, partially the Digital Recourse Council would deal with it. Although, of course, don't quote me on that. I don't know if I'm 100% sure, but I do know that the law would actually lead to the creation of what is called the Digital Safety Commissioner of Canada. And of course, the commissioner, like many other commissioner positions within Canada, would deal with digital safety. And thirdly, the law itself would actually give more power to private companies as well. And the reason is because the law would deal with online hate by telling private companies like Twitter or Instagram, uh, or, or I should actually say Facebook because Facebook owns Instagram, but basically companies like Twitter and, and Facebook would have to deal with de deleting online hate or online hate speech that exists within their platforms. And so if someone were to make a hate speech post on Facebook and it was flagged by government regulators or by individuals, then the government would essentially tell you know, Twitter or Facebook to delete that, you know, delete that post or deal with it, get rid of it, you know, uh, you know, either suspend the user, whatever sort of recourse that there would be. And so, of course, 
the good with this is that it would push these private companies who also have a bad track record because a lot of these companies have done a really bad job when it comes to dealing with hate speech. For example, Facebook was used predominantly in Myanmar to promote the killing of the Rohingya, who were, of course, a Muslim minority within Myanmar. And so the Facebook was basically used as a way for many terrorists within uh, Rohingya, or, or within uh, Myanmar, I should say, to basically promote the killing of Muslims. Or on the other hand, uh, things like Twitter or Instagram or even Facebook have been major uses by the Hindu Vada within India who have tried to target Muslim minorities through social media and encourage the killing of Muslims as well. And of course, it's not just Muslims that are targeted. Many other minority groups have been targeted through Facebook and social media as well. So on one hand, the private companies themselves have a really bad record when it comes to actually dealing with hate speech online. But on the other hand, of course, this would give the government the power to tell these private companies, you know, go deal with it. But at the same time, the problem is, is that the private companies would basically have to, you know, they'd have to either A, listen to the government. So the question is, is, you know, is that again, giving too much power to the government? But then also at the same time, you know, what exactly would be flagged, right? Like what if something is wrongfully flagged and then the private company takes it down? You know, how would that work? How does that become, you know, corrected? So there's still a lot of questions that go behind that as well. And then fourthly, the target would mainly focus in terms of like the online posts that the law would target are mainly broken into five categories. And so the five categories are as follows. The first is terrorist content. The second is content that incites violence. The third is hate speech content. The fourth is intimate images shared without consent. And the fifth is child exploitation content. And so as you can see, there is sort of a big blend of laws, or sorry, a big blend of content that is covered within online hate speech. And in terms of the intimate images shared without consent, and as well as child exploitation content, I should say, um, in terms of that, that obviously doesn't necessarily deal with hate speech, but does have to deal with online crimes. So online crimes in general that are being covered by the law. And then finally, the penalties that the law deals are very substantial when it comes to dealing with private companies. And so the regulators would have the ability to give fines of up to $10 million or 3% of global revenues to private companies, whichever is higher for companies that do not comply and can increase fines if companies do not comply. So a regulator has the ability, if a company refuses to remove content uh, and isn't justified, I assume, in removing, uh, you know, isn't justified in refusing to remove the content, the regulator has the ability to give fines of up to $10 million or 3% of global revenues, which is quite high and can increase the fines later. So really, like, there is a lot of, you know, uh, money that can be fined here. And, you know, the government could definitely hand out some very substantial fines, which is very interesting to read about. Because a lot of times, when there are sort of regulations towards private companies, they don't necessarily have the highest fines or sort of the penalties that are given out. But here, 
we're kind of seeing the opposite. The government would give out a pretty big substantial fine over, you know, a refusal to remove content by a private company, which I think is quite interesting. But at the same time, you know, that is maybe problematic as well, because, you know, again, it comes back to my main question of what kind of content are they going to be removing? And is it justified to be removed? Now, of course, I didn't go through every single detail of the law. I just went through many of the things that I found were maybe the most, uh, I guess you'd say, important or uh, interesting to, to kind of read about. Uh, so, of course, if you guys do have time, I'd encourage you to go and try to learn more about the law because, uh, of course, it will be a pretty important law and I think one that will cause a lot of debate in the coming months and weeks. Uh, although, I guess, for the most part, most of the debates right now are just focused on the COVID-19 lockdowns, but I'm sure we'll start debating about this as well. Now, I think that another part of this law is that, yes, you know, we might understand and know that online hate speech is uh, a main problem. But I think what we also need to look at is to understand, like, based on kind of statistics and facts, does that back it up? Because we may believe that it is, but I think, you know, can we back that up? And so what I want to get into now is to understand the, the question of is online hate speech slash online hate propaganda a major issue? And so I think as Muslims, and I'm assuming, again, everyone who listens to this is Muslim, but I'm sure as Muslims, we can easily say, yes, it is an issue. I mean, we pretty much know this because uh, many of us, especially in Canada, probably have lived through it or we've seen others who've experienced it. And of course, we've seen it through both the London terror attack and the Quebec mosque shooting. But I think that it's important to at least go into detail into this as well. And so you know, I was reading an article that was published, uh, uh, that was written from what CSIS had been um, sort of talking about. And uh, basically, CSIS was saying that recently, due to COVID-19, um, there had been some concern, and CSIS had expressed some serious concern over the rise in online hate rhetoric since the beginning of the pandemic. And so this is specifically since the beginning of the, the pandemic uh, around, I guess you'd say, 2020-ish. And specifically mentioning that most of the hate speech had been focused on amplifying xenophobia, which is the hatred of foreigners. So not the hatred of someone based on just their race or their culture or their religion, but hatred based on them being a foreigner, as well as an express increase in anti-authoritarian narratives. So anti-authoritarian narratives are narratives that are basically put out there to say that people should oppose the government and people should, you know, attack the government and ignore what the government tells it to do. So I'm sure some of you see this uh, on social media all the time. Uh, there's always people who are saying about, oh, you know, the government is bad, the government is bad. But this is more than that. You know, this is people who aren't just saying that the government is bad. They're saying to basically oppose all forms of the government's authority. And so the increase in both of these, in both xenophobia and anti-authoritarian narratives, are something that was to the point that CSIS expressed public concern over it. And I think that that's definitely something where if, you know, someone says that, you know, it's online hate speech or, you know, online hate crimes, uh, not a big deal, I'd say, well, yes, it's actually become a bigger deal since the beginning of the pandemic. So it was already a deal, 
uh, especially for racial minorities. But since the pandemic, it's become an even bigger deal because it's, it's expanded into things like xenophobia and anti-authoritarian narratives, or it's amplified them further. And in addition, anti-COVID-19 lockdowns and protests have increased threats against medical individuals, particularly with some going as far as encouraging the public execution and killings of those who oppose their liberties. So this is, I think, probably the wildest part about, you know, some of this online hate speech that has been circulating around Canada and, you know, I think the U.S. and much of the world. Is that some of these people who propose, you know, this online hate speech, they basically, you know, they, they crossed the line long ago. You know, like like there was a line where, I guess people are allowed to state their opinions and whatnot, but this is not even them stating their opinions anymore, right? Like this is them asking, basically encouraging people to kill others. And I believe there was this, uh, there was this arrest that was made recently in Canada. I, I don't remember the person's name, but essentially it, it was a woman who declared herself the queen of Canada. And she was, uh, of course, as you'd probably expect, she was a Canadian QAnon figure. No surprise there. She was obviously deep in the conspiracy theories, and I mean deep in the conspiracy theories. And she was basically arrested by the RCMP's national security team in BC because she had basically been telling her uh, alleged 73,000 followers on Telegram to attack healthcare workers. You know, healthcare workers, the same people who are protecting us from COVID-19 and saving our lives, she was encouraging to attack them. And in addition, she was, of course, also saying that people should attack politicians, government workers, journalists, and teachers for some reason. I don't know why you'd attack teachers, but she wanted them to attack teachers as well, apparently. And really, what I just want to highlight by going into detail about this is that you know, online hate, yes, it definitely impacts people of color. And obviously, we know that based on, uh, you know, Canada's uh, recent both the London terror attack and Quebec mosque shooting. But at the same time, it has expanded a lot within Canada, especially because of the pandemic. So in many ways, actually having a bill to counter online hate speech is really important right now, because there are some fringe element groups like QAnon and other anti-authoritarian groups or, you know, white supremacist groups that do in fact seek to do some very bad things within Canada. Their main objectives are basically to, uh, and I, I guess, you know, this is to put it as bluntly as possible, but they basically want to destroy Canadian society because they think it's bad. So, you know, we should probably do something about that before they do it, right? Like, that's probably a good thing to do. And that's not to say that the online harms bill is the only way to do it. But at the same time, not dealing with online hate is probably not a good idea either. Now, of course, because I did emphasize about the increase of online hate crimes since the beginning of the pandemic, I'm sure there's going to be some people that listen to this or people who might rebut this by saying that, well, you know, that's only since the beginning of the pandemic. But that's not really true because uh, previous 
you know, pre- previous uh, records or reports or publications have shown quite the opposite. And I covered this report before, but police reported hate crimes uh, in twenty in twenty seventeen. I think it was, um, I believe, uh, Statistics Canada released a report that focused on police reported hate crimes till twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. I believe. Um, I could be wrong about that, so I apologize. Uh, but essentially, police reported hate crimes uh, in 2017 specifically said that of the 364 police reported hate crimes that were classified as online hate, 17% were targeted at people that were Muslims. And that online hate crimes made up 11% of all hate crimes reported, with uttering threats being the most common charge. So again, these statistics cover the fact that this is not a one-off thing. That online hate isn't just increasing because of the pandemic. It's actually been increasing for quite some time. So in 2017, we were already experiencing an increase. So now by 2021, 2022, you can imagine that, yes, there has become a much bigger increase. And yes, there are many other statistics to focus on. There are many other things that we can get into. But I didn't want to, A, because I did actually cover part of this already before in the previous episode and in other episodes before, but also because of the fact that regardless, my main point is that these these issues are starting to rise. And so rather than again waiting for it to occur, why don't we pass a legislation like the online harms bill? Now, I also want to point out, and I pointed this out in the previous episode as well, but many activists will tell you that the number of reported crimes for police reported hate crimes is extremely low. And this makes total sense, especially when it comes to online hate crimes. And it's mainly because of the fact that if you're online, you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram, whatever, let's say you post something, let's say a woman in a hijab posts her wearing the hijab online, right? And then some random user called, you know, I don't know, racist123, decides to say, you know, hey, you know, you're, you're, a, you know, you're a terrorist or, you know, whatever, says something racist towards, you know, her for being like Arab or for being brown, whatever it is, right? Well, what, what's that person going to do, right? Like, this is some random account. It's just called like racist123. What do you do? Like, there's no person that's associated with that name. It's an anonymous account. There's nothing to associate, you know, in terms of physical entity with that account, How do you report that, right? So that's why police reported hate crimes, especially for online hate crimes, is definitely not accurate because how are you supposed to report a a, a hate crime where there's no one to actually say this person did it to me, right? And, And then on top of that, there's also the gaps that the police services have when it comes to actually dealing with hate crimes. One, one thing I noticed that when I was going through some police services was that certain police services actually have units that are dedicated to stuff like online hate crimes or hate crimes in general, while others do and others don't. So some of them would have maybe sort of a, a mixed blend in that they're uh, maybe part of a larger group, but others would have more dedicated units towards it. So it would almost depend to what unit you're dealing with because certain units would have more specialization in it and others wouldn't. So if maybe you went to a unit that was more specialized, you'd have a better result. So arguably, there's more of a variation when it comes to online hate crimes as well. So maybe this also highlights 
that in, 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 you know, inclusion with maybe passing more laws, what also needs to happen is that police services need, need to take online hate and online hate crimes much more seriously. Or they need to figure out ways that they can appropriately deal with accusations or incidents where people receive online hate in a manner that is, you know, a hate crime, right? Because if this is becoming a major issue, the laws don't need to just adapt, but the police services need to as well. It's just as crucial. Now, I've obviously given you a lot of opinions that, you know, I found and a lot of my own opinions as well, but uh, as you can imagine, the law itself is a very debatable one, and it's definitely been one that's driven some pretty big divides amongst many politicians and even some of the political parties themselves. I mean, for the most part, uh, I would argue that most left-leaning or sort of center-left-leaning people, for the most part, advocate that it is an important law, that it's necessary to have laws that are able to fight and counter online hate and online hate crimes. However, and I don't like to necessarily agree with the Conservative Party of Canada, but I will say that there is some truth to what I'd say some more right-wing groups are saying in that there are some issues when it comes to how much control you're now giving to the government when it comes to regulating online content. And and I'm not, of course, going to find a solution to this. I'm not smart enough, nor am I some lawyer that can tell you the legal intricacies that go behind understanding, you know, uh, the the uh, kind of the comparison between your freedoms and government control. But for the most part, there are many divisive options towards the law. And, you know, I think that, you know, to cover even some of the main opposing views, um, I can only, of course, do it in a general manner. But at the same time, I think that regardless, you know, in my opinion, and I think I should put this out there, is that I would say that, yes, there are definitely some problems with the law, but I think that for the most part, it is something that is needed. And and I do have problems with the way the government is maybe implementing the law, especially when it comes to how much power they're giving to CSIS or the RCMP, because I'll be honest with you, it's not that I don't trust the RCMP or CSIS. It's just that I really don't think that they've had or that they've used some of their power in the, you know, in, in the best way. And by this, what I really mean is that there's always an aspect that if you give too much control or too much power to security forces within a country, you're really in danger of, you know, those security forces abusing that power in the name of doing what's best for the country. And I know I've repeated this point throughout, but that's just because it's something that's really stuck in my mind. It's something that I think we take for granted at times within Canada, that there are actual laws that limit the abilities of what the security forces or the government or, you know, the police can actually do to you. That there are things that can hold these people accountable because in many parts of the world, it's not like that. It's not like that where you have people who can be held accountable for their mistakes. And so just to go through in this section, I wanted to go through some opposing and some supporting views of the law. And I will try to go into, I think, maybe as much detail as I can. Um, but of course, as always, please go do your own research. And 
you know, I think that it's very important, especially as Canadians, to be as informed as we can on a recent law that may pass. And so to begin the opposing views, obviously the most, I guess, prominent one that you'll hear, especially from, you know, the more, uh, you know, freedom of speech people is that it is a suppression of freedom of speech, which is rightfully true. Any bill that stops people from saying what they want to say is a suppression of free speech. The question is whether or not it is justified. In my opinion, if it's online hate, and if it is in fact, you know, the uh, hate speech online that promotes the killing of others, then I think it's justified to suppress it. I don't think that that's necessarily something wrong. Now, I'm not saying that that's a blanket statement that covers everything that might be censored, but at the same time, I do think that we need to make bigger strides to prevent the uh, promotion of online hate online. So I don't know about the whole free speech argument. And a second argument would be about the increasing role of the government and the regulation over what people can do. And so this kind of builds off the previous argument. But again, I'd say that if you can properly justify it, I don't know if it's a bad thing. Now, the third one is kind of an interesting one, and that's that it's a threat to people's privacy from the government. And, and this is really interesting because one of the things that made social media really nice, especially during its original kind of run as social media, I mean, this is what I'm talking about, like early 2010, when a lot of these social media companies were just sort of starting out and, you know, starting to get bigger, social media was a place where people could kind of freely be who they wanted to be, right? Like there was a lot less regulations or restrictions and you could do a lot more online as well because of the fact that, you know, there was a lot less people online, but also there was a lot less uh, sort of focus by the government or other actors on social media but of course now there isn't and so you know a lot of people put a lot of information online if you actually uh, go on youtube or you know you go through uh, um, some like news articles they'll talk about how some people have a problem of oversharing where they overshare too much information and it can get to the point where they actually share too much information that it becomes a threat to their own privacy where if someone were to go through your social media accounts they could actually figure out a lot of important details about you so just in case this is a psa to everyone do not overshare on social media because you never know who's actually looking at your social media profile and trying to figure out things like your passwords or you know where you live or you know who you're associated with, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that, you know, this, I guess, challenges when it comes to this law is that if this much information is available where a private actor could go and learn about you, what would overregulation of social media allow the government to learn about you, right? Like, that would be my kind of question. And, and I understand where this question is coming from. You know, I may be a citizen of a country, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the government needs to know everything that I might believe in or everything that I might stand for. Because at times there are things where, you know, I want to be able to say what I want to say without the fear that the government might try to block me or ban me for saying what I'm trying to say. 
right? So at the same time, there's sort of this balance again, similar to the previous points that I was talking about, where you sort of have, have to balance this. And it also balances out with the next point, which is the increasing role of law enforcement. I already talked about this, but we really need to ask ourselves, is increasing the mandate of the RCMP, of CSIS, and other security forces within Canada, is that okay? Is that a good thing to do? You know, is this something that we are uh, comfortable with? And is it something that we think can actually help? And now the next point, and one that I think is somewhat interesting, was that one of the proposed ways that, uh, you know, they would sort of monitor online hate speech would be through the use of algorithms. And so for those of you who don't know what algorithms are, um, I will try my best to explain them, although I will be honest with you, uh, I'm not some computer whiz, so I don't know exactly how to describe what algorithms are, so I'm going to try my best with a limited knowledge of algorithms to explain to you what algorithms are. And so in my, uh, um, I guess, my inexperienced and uh, not knowledgeable opinion, uh, which is not a good way to give, uh, you know, opinion of what something is, but here I go. Algorithms are essentially this computer program that's basically, well, I mean, programmed, <laughs> if you didn't figure out that it was programmed, but it's programmed to essentially look for certain, um, you know, data or information that was preset by the person who set up the program. Um, I, I, I hope that made sense. It made sense in my mind. I don't know if it made sense in yours. And if it didn't make, se make sense in yours, just pause the video, or I should say pause the audio, and just go Google what algorithms are, uh, because I'm pretty sure Google will give you a better explanation anyways. So algorithms essentially would be used to monitor and point out things that need to be removed. Now, the problem with algorithms is that many algorithms have their own biases. And many people will propose the use of algorithms because they'll say that by using computers, we will eliminate bias. So bias, things like racial bias, uh, you know, cultural, physical, or, uh, you know, religious biases against someone. So rather than using a human being who might, you know, maybe if a human being is on a, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a regulation committee, and they don't like people who are, you know, Muslim, or they don't like people who are from Latin America, then maybe they would, you know, uh, you know, scrutinize those people more than they would scrutinize someone who is not from that area. Now, in theory, of course, this works great. The problem is, though, that there needs to be a human being that needs to input the data into the algorithm. And that's where algorithms become a problem or at least they're one part of the problem, in that algorithms could be, uh, you know, programmed by someone who has a bias. So the algorithm itself, in theory, could be unbiased, but if the person who's inputting the data, for example, if they are a person who hates, again, you know, brown people or something, then the algorithm will likely also hate brown people, because the algorithm is a product of someone who hates brown people. So algorithms aren't always the best way. And in fact, they can actually backfire and they can e end up hurting marginalized communities like, you know, uh, minority groups like brown people or black people within Canada. And they have in past, actually, algorithms have been found to be more racist or more discriminatory 
because they were written by people who themselves were already discriminatory. So algorithms, not the best solution available. And I think the last point here that I wanted to talk about that's the opposing views to the law is that this one is actually more not about stuff like free speech or regulation, but it actually is one of the few criticisms that I found interesting that actually dealt with the law itself. And it, if you guys go back or if you remember what I was talking about before where I talked about the five categories that it covers, and let me re, uh, reiterate them. They are number one, terrorist content. Number two, content that incites violence. Number three, hate speech. Number four, intimate images shared without consent. And then number five, child exploitation content. And yes, you know, this is some very important stuff. However, there's a good point to be made that that's way too broad. You know, those are some very broad categories. And the worry that some people have had is that you would essentially be regulating child exploitation content, which is stuff like uh, child pornography or whatnot, which is, of course, very, very, very illegal and terrible uh, nonetheless, no matter how you look at it. Um, and I, I don't I don't think any of you should oppose that. I don't think so. Um, but regardless, right, like th that's a very different thing than something like a hate crime, which is obviously a crime that's committed against someone because of their race or their culture. How can you equate those two to be the same thing when you're trying to regulate them? They are not. There's a very different, you know, group or people that you might target under child pornography compared to something like a hate crime, right? There's a very big difference. But, you know, putting them under the same umbrella law, um, that might not be the best idea. And, and I really agree with this, you know, because I think that there has to be more nuance. And, and I hope that as this, as this, you know, bill is sort of rolled out and the government, you know, kind of goes more into detail about this, that there is more debate and sort of a, I guess, um, you know, an, an understanding of what, you know, the differences or how we will target them differently is. Because, uh, again, like, it, it may actually backfire to hurt the countering of these things more than it could actually help because there's a lot of things out there that these places, you know, may overlap, especially when it comes to the fact that they are generally distributed or, you know, done online. However, the way that you might want to counter them is very different. And so, it might be better to have more of a variation approach when actually dealing with them. And then moving on to the other side of this debate, and that is the supporting views. You know, there's a lot of supporting views and I think a lot of ways that people can argue their supporting views. But I think the best way to maybe, yes, you know, summarize it uh, is that essentially the biggest supporting view is that online hate, online hate crimes hate speech online, whatever you want to say, however you want to put it, whatever way you want to look at it, it is a major issue within Canada and it is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. As I mentioned before, it is not something that is just happening because of the pandemic. It is not something that is just rising now. It is something that has been rising in this country for years, for years and why is it that we're just going to sit there and ignore it? Is this law perfect? No. I don't think even people who support this law are saying that it is the absolute perfect law. I don't think anyone is saying that. But what they're saying is that the dangers of online hate, 
the dangers of a hate crime online is so serious that a law like this needs to be passed. That's the way that I interpreted it. That's the way that I saw what they were saying. Now, you may see it differently, and that's totally within your right, but that's the way that I saw the main argument for supporting this bill, is that yes, yes, you know, there will be, uh, you know, there will be maybe some repercussions in terms of the government control, and I again, I don't think anyone's denying that, but at the same time, this is one of the few laws compared to Canada's other hate crime laws, which I discussed, of course, in the previous episode, that actually deals with and criminalizes people who commit hate crimes, right? Because Canada's other laws only criminalize hate propaganda or the public incitement of hatred. But this law actually criminalizes someone if they would were to post something like, you know, Muslims are terrorists and they need to go home or die, right? If someone posted something like that, under this law, they would likely face repercussions for it. And I think that there has to be a discussion as to whether or not we're just going to sit there and ignore the fact that these kind of things are happening. And, and of course, people who criticize this law, not all of them are saying to ignore online hate. That's not what they're saying. But I do want to see people who oppose this law to come up with a solution. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people love to criticize, right? A lot of people love to criticize. They love to, you know, point things out about what's wrong with this, what's wrong with that. You'll see it a lot in politics, right? The opposition parties are always criticizing the government. But I do think that to some degree, at some point, the opposition also needs to come up with a solution. Not just opposition, come up with a solution. Come up with a way that we can actually solve this issue. And that's what I'd say, you know, to people who I think don't like this law. And again, I'm also not sold on this law. I want to make that clear. I'm not saying that this is the greatest law ever. But I really do wonder, how exactly are we intending to counter the rise of online hate within Canada? And really, what are we going to do to make sure that this isn't something that continues to occur within this country. Now, that's where I feel is appropriate to sort of end this conversation and to sort of, I guess, put a, a bow. Is that the saying? I don't know if that's the saying. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't even know if I said that right. But what, however, you know, whatever way you want to look at that, this is where I'm going to end the discussion because I think that we've, A, discussed enough, and um, also, you know, I, I don't know how much more I can actually go into detail uh, right now. But regardless, you know, I, I hope the discussion was interesting for you. And I hope that you did learn something. And, you know, I, I hope that um, the episode at least sort of maybe brought a spark in, in your, you know, in your head or whatnot to, to kind of learn more about this law. Because, again, it will be very important and it could drastically change a lot of things about Canada, especially what is acceptable online, which for many of us, especially younger Muslims and 21st century Muslims, it's going to be very important for us how or what we're allowed to post or what we're not allowed to post, etc., etc., within this country. And, and I also want to point one last thing. Just because this law is supposed to counter online hate does not mean it'll necessarily not impact someone if they're, you know, a person of color. Just so we're clear here right? 
Because the big question again is also what exactly would be defined as something that is online hate, right? But anyways, that's not something I want to get into again because as I said previously, this episode is ending now. And with that being said, of course, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support. Uh, Thank you guys for supporting the podcast. If you did enjoy today's episode, please do remember to leave a five-star review at the bottom of the podcast page. Um, I really appreciate if you guys do leave good reviews because it A, allows me to continue making the podcast and B, it also allows more exposure and for other people to listen to the podcast, which reminds me that if you did enjoy today's podcast episode, please remember to share it with others. If you enjoyed it, I'm sure there will be others. And of course, I'd always love to hear what you guys thought of the episode as well. Uh, So if you do have any opinions or anything, please remember to follow me on my Instagram page. It's Muslims in Your Backyard. I post uh, episode updates as well as other posts there. So please do go check it out. Uh, And of course, also remember to leave a five-star review at the bottom of this podcast or uh, at the podcast homepage from whatever podcast uh, listener you are listening to this from. And then with that being said, uh, as always, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate the support. And inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again.